So welcome, Ari, and we're going to pray for you. Lord, thank you, Lord, for, for Ari. We just want to bless him, Lord. We want to bless what you've given him, Lord. We thank you for him right now and the things that you've given him, Lord, and I ask God you would open our ears to hear the words that you're speaking to us through him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Greetings from Finland and from my summer house. Here you can see three pictures. Uh, I'm spending my summer times there, and since my childhood I've been there every, every summer. Uh, when I was 10 years old, um, my grandmother died who owned the house, and it was a surprise to me when I was told that she wanted to give her house to me. So I, you know, her, she had a three daughters. My mother was one, so they didn't get anything. Um, just a piece of furniture and so on. So I asked why, and I was told that when I was about five years old, I had said to my grandmother, Grandmother, when you die, will you give this house to me? <laughs> I was a clever kid. <laughs> I don't remember that even. So... You should ask all the bold questions to God and from God this week. I encourage you to ask big things from God. So Jesus says, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So be encouraged. Coming Together again, after a period of isolation, we are all excited to be gathered here again. The theme of this camp is stepping out. Out from isolation into the presence of God and into the fellowship. When we come to the Christian camp or the Sunday meetings, we often might feel isolated and disconnected with people. We seek fellowship, but we are afraid that are we really welcome? Maybe we have a broken family or broken relationships, and that's why we are afraid that we might be again rejected. That's a problem of disconnection. Some people who come to the camp might be afraid that people would abandon me if they would know what I have done. That's a guilt problem. Some People have experienced so much abandonment and rejection that they have started to believe that they are bad persons. They are not liked. Their self-image is covered by shame. That's the shame issue. Some people are struggling with demonic bondages. You have maybe practiced religions which have brought demons and curses to your life. These demons are telling you the lies about God and the church people. That's a fear problem. These four examples may describe all the people in our churches and why they are struggling with their faith and come to the fellowship. These four cases are also connected with the four cultures which affects us all the time. I will show you a picture which describes about it. 
Christian anthropologist and Bible translator Eugen Nida has argued that people live in three different cultures. Europeans have been affected by Christianity, and that's why we ask who did wrong and who should be punished. We live in a cultural guilt. So the gospel to us is that Jesus took the punishment on the cross, which belongs to us. But the people in Africa live in a culture of fear. That's what the new Eugen told. The fear of evil spirits and curses affect Africans more than others. You need to tell these people that Jesus won the Satan and demons on the cross. He can deliver you from the curses and demons. But this is not so simplistic anymore. We in the West also have demons here, (laughs) if you don't know. Um, which are causing people's lives many fears. People have been practiced different religions, new age practices or whatever we have met through the years. But the people in Asia, North Africa and the Middle East live in a culture of shame. They fear that their actions will bring shame to themselves and into their families. And you need to tell them that the, that um, uh, your actions have dishonored God But Jesus took your punishment and the shame on the cross. But again, this is not so simplistic. Shame issue is now affecting also people in the West. We live in a culture which has abandoned Christianity. So we are not maybe not anymore so much in a guilt culture, but we are in a shame culture. So we have heard about the woke culture or cancel culture or shaming culture, people are shamed in the media because they might have a different views about gender and sexuality, for example. It's not the guilt anymore, you haven't made a crime, but you have maybe different views and you are shamed. You should just change your views. Jay Moon and Bud Simon have written a book called Effective Intercultural Evangelism, and actually I met Simon a couple of years ago in the United States. But it was 20 years as a vineyard church planter in Brazil. And they have argued that there is actually fourth culture in the West, and it's affecting the people in their 20s. It's a culture called indifference to God and religion. So the Christianity don't have any meaning to them. So when we are talking about the guilt and punishment on the cross and shame, it's like, well, you know, it doesn't connect my life. I don't see the meaning for that. Especially young people in their 20s don't feel the connection with how we tell the gospel story anymore. What is their question? They are searching identity. Who I am? Am I valued or not? Am I accepted or not? And they are struggling with loneliness and meaning of life. So the gospel to them is, hey, you are brought To the church, you are among friends, you are accepted, whoever you are, whatever you have done. We want to share your life problems. So it's belonging and then believing. So they need genuine friendships without judgments, without making difference of the people who we are. And there's a family. You come home through through the cross of Jesus. These people are in a, in a very deep need of the family. 
These poor cultures might affect you who are here right now and also people in our church. We have Afghans in our church and they were part of the same culture. And um, I've known them about five years now and still I'm, I've learned a lot. You know, how much shame is affecting. I'm a teacher in a school and um, I'm, I'm teaching psychology. And of course, I ask the students that, well, what do you think about this issue? But when I ask the same from Afghans, they, they were paralyzed in fear. And they said, well, I, I shouldn't say anything. I said, why? Because in Afghanistan, the imam was beating me with a rod and um, hit to my head. So the ear came from, uh, blood came from my ear. I shouldn't ask any questions. I'm shaming myself. I'm shaming my family. If I ask anything, I should just obey and swallow. I said, well, okay, now you, you're in a different culture. You can't survive in a Finnish school system if you don't learn this. So we were talking about lots about the shame and what brings shame to people's lives. And still it's sometimes a mystery uh, when I'm working with them. We are learning from each other a lot. But like I said, this is not so simplistic. Uh, we also have uh, teenagers, people in their 20s, who might feel that they are part of the shame culture and the indifference culture. What is my statement in this morning? Confession of sins brings freedom from guilt. Receiving love after telling truth about yourself brings freedom from shame. Actually, I've tested this with Afghans. We have talked about a lot about that. Is that that the shame of Afghans are broken, that you are telling your life truly how it is, and then you still feel loved? Do you dare to do, the, do that? And, and that means that we have to build um, mutual trust, and it takes time. So the perfect love, God's perfect love will cast out the fear. That's what the Bible says. And the authentic relationships will make fellowship. Some people, at least me, I have struggled to how to make distinction between guilt and shame. So the guilt is the inner feeling that comes when you have done something wrong or you haven't done something right. Shame might be confused with the guilt, but it's not the same thing. Shame is a feeling in which you perceive, perceive yourself as a failure or a bad person. So if you feel that I'm a bad person, it doesn't mean that you are feeling of sin. It's, a, it's actually a shame. So I have a, I have a colleague in... Um, in a school who said that I don't want to come to the church because I'm labeled as a bad person, as a sinner. And I started to think that, well, actually, he didn't understand our language anymore. So when we are saying that we all are sinners, the people who are not family with the Christianity, they think that, well, we are just labeling them bad. We are shaming them. So we have to explain what actually sin means. I will come to that a little bit later. So, uh, and that's what we, we don't even do in our church. We don't probably sometimes explain what is sin. So the New Testament writers are using several terms to describe the sin. 
The most widely used term for sin in New Testament is hamartia, which means a, a failure to hit the mark. It may be illustrated by failure of a bowman to hit the bull's eye with his arrow. So basically, you try to do good, but you fail. Sin is also parabasis, transgression of God's boundary, when a person knows that he or she is passing beyond forbidden line. Sin is paraoke, disobedience to God, God's law, like Adam and Eve did not obey God's uh, uh, commandment. Sin is paraptoma. I don't see any slides now. Oh, okay. Um, falling down when you should stand, stand up, upright. Sin is hetema, which means suffering, defeat, and missing God's purpose. Sin is agnoema, bad deed which is done by being ignorant. What is wrong? Sin is asebia. Actively leaving God out of account, ungodliness. And when I look at this list, I said, well, that's my everyday life. <laughs> you know, so when we are actually talking about sin, we are not talking something alien to people's lives. I, years ago, I was in New Age Festival with a healing room ministry, and we met a, I met a lady who, who, said that, you know, who came to the prayer, and I said, well, what, um, have you received Christ? No. Would you like to receive? Because, you know, we have sin and um, Jesus has done that on the cross and so on. And she said, I don't feel that I'm a sinner. I said, okay, tell your story. And she said, that, well, actually, I have a cancer. And, uh, and maybe I'm, uh, I will die. I'm a psychotherapist. And, and through all my life, I have... Uh, uh, take the burdens of others from my childhood. And now I think that I got this sickness because I actually don't stand anymore. And then she said that, well, she went to the church uh, and was prayed for. She collapsed on the floor by the Holy Spirit. And about a one hour and 15 minutes, she, she was just paralyzed and were, were compelled to stare the cross in the church. And I said, well, what do you think that God would like to... <laughs> show you. I said, but I don't feel that I'm a, I'm a sinner. And then I, and, uh, and they said, well, okay. Then I said, God, Holy Spirit, please help me. And they said, well, now, you know, you have tried to save other people's lives. Would you like that Jesus would save your life? Hey, that's a good thing. I would like to receive that. So he, she received Christ. So actually, she was built the, her whole life upon sin. He had, she had been sinned against as, on, as a reaction. You know, she was joking. She was like a savior to people, false savior. But the, but the word sin was alien to her, even though she was living in that, like I, I'm living. When I was uh, 18 years old, I had a summer, comp, uh, summer job in a company. The owner of the company wanted to pay me illegal way. So I didn't have to pay taxes, and they didn't have to pay additional expenses related to salary. 
by a little pressure, I agreed to it, but then the Holy Spirit started to rebuke me. Every time I prayed, I heard a voice in my mind which was telling that I was doing sin, I was wrong. And eventually God spoke to me through the Bible. And finally I called to this business owner and I wanted to pay the salary so that they would pay the salary me with the taxes. And I was so ashamed because I knew that my honesty cost them more money. I was even more ashamed that my parents were their friends. Ah, that was a bad thing. I tried to, I, when I called, my mother actually heard it and tried to prevent my call as I, I pushed her to another room. And, uh, and so my, actually my honesty bring, brought shame to my family. But I knew, and also that they would talk bad things about me afterwards. Ah, oh, that that that's a clear Christian boy, you know, he was 18 years old and he wants to do the right things. He don't understand life. So, so admitting guilt might actually bring shame and ridicule from other people. But God wants the truth regardless of the price. And I don't know your situation when you come to the camp through the for a couple of years, what you have done, or, you know, maybe you have been away from Christian ministry, uh, not been active in the church so much, and your spiritual life, well, it was maybe burning before, and now you're struggling that, ah, I would need, like, a fresh start. And, and maybe you feel shame about, you know, what you have not done, or, or you know, what have done to you. Maybe you have had a problem with addictions or sins. So it doesn't matter. You're welcome here wherever you are right now. The Bible passage today is from the second Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And I think that this story describes sin, shame, and honor a lot. And maybe you feel connected. It. So the story goes like the King David army goes to the war, but David stays in his palace. Actually, as a king, he should lead the army, but he's not in the right place. He's not in a spiritual battle. And maybe you have also experienced the same thing during these years. You know, church gatherings has been hard to find, and um, regulations have prevented you to go, and actually you are like a withdrawing from the spiritual battle. And actually, we are all the time in a spiritual battle. All the time. Satan is not, you know, a good friend. He's an enemy. And we are always in a battleground. No matter what. So we thought, okay, maybe I relax like a King David. I don't go to the war. I just, uh, I need a, you know, holiday from the spirit of war. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, one evening, he's walking on the roof of his palace. And he saw a beautiful woman bathing nearby house. Her name was Bathsheba, and her husband, Uriah, had gone uh, to the war with the, uh, with the Israel army. So the Bathsheba was not bathing, taking a bath to seduce David, but to observe Old Testament purity regulations. The story says, now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. That detail describes the purposes of Bathsheba cleansing. Bathsheba was bathing 
uh, one week after her ovulation ended, precisely when the Jewish law required ritual bathing bath uh, for a woman's bleeding. So this was not like the Hollywood-style seduction scene when she just wanted to be naked and want to be seen. David saw Bathsheba and sent his servant to get her to the palace. Then David had sex with her. Using his power, he was relaxed from the war, not in the right place, and then a temptation hit, and he just let it go. Maybe he was tired of war. Maybe he was afraid to lose his life, and now he was escaping from where he should have been. Bathsheba returned to her home, but discovered later that she had become a pregnant. Actually, when you look at this story, David could have said, I don't care about what happens to Bathsheba. When her husband comes to the home and has sex with her, you know, maybe, you know, that solves the problem. But actually, you know, if that doesn't happen, and she will get a baby, I will just abandon her, and the Jewish people will stone him, stone her, you know, kill according to the law of Moses. I would not care. David did not do that. So, David sent an order to his military commander that Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, was to send from home to the battlefield. And so he thought that, well, maybe the husband would have a sex with wife, and then Uriah will think that this is my child. So why David did that? In a guilt culture, we would say he wanted to cover his sin. But in a shame culture, the Bible was, was written in a shame culture, we could maybe say that, okay, he was trying to cover his guilt and his bad action, but maybe he tried to save the honor of Bathsheba. Otherwise, she would have faced the death by stoning. Well, they, actually, the plan failed. Uriah did not, when he came home, he didn't go to the home, but slept in a courtyard of David's palace. He was the hero in this story, not the David. So David had another plan. So he gave alcohol to him and got him drunk and waited that he would go home as drunk, but that didn't happen. And eventually David said, well, go to the field, and he sent a letter to commander, and um, Uriah was sent to the first front um, by purpose and was killed there. So the plan succeeded. David was not ashamed of what he had done in shame culture. He, actually, his core knew what he had done because he had sent some servants to Bathsheba. He had used and misused the power as a leader and violated the commandment of Mo Mosaic law, which forbade coveting another's wife. So eventually... David took Bathsheba as his wife, and after nine months, the son was born. He could have abandoned Bathsheba, but he saved, actually, Bathsheba's honor by taking her as a wife. But also to maybe try to save his honor. Okay, I did wrong thing, but I, eventually I'm a good, like a guy. I will save her and not let her die. So 
when we're looking at these Bible stories, the new thing for me is to discover the issue of shame. And I encourage you to look about the stories in the same way. Because we, Bible was written in a shame culture. And it doesn't mean that there's not guilt anymore. So, maybe we also try to cover our sin and save our face. But God shows everything. God sees everything. He's above our cultures. He's above the people and about culture. So the Lord sent prophet Nathan to David, who exposed David's sin. So in the second Samuel chapter 12, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan re replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. So the sin of a leader is a more severe thing and a serious thing than the sin of a normal church member. If you're in a leadership, your sin is affecting people more. And you, you're, you're more in charge. More responsibility, more requirements. That's the hardship in leadership. God is looking at you in a more careful way. And I would say that as a leader, it's not an easy thing. So if you as a leader think that, oh, okay, this is so hard, this battle, I can understand you. I've been in the same way, in the same place. But God is merciful, whatever has been done. So what we learn from this story is that God sees our sin, but the the problem is, or the solution is, confessing. The first John chapter 1 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So God shows mercy to those who repent. And in this point, David got mercy when he admitted that he had made sin against the Lord. He didn't explain that actually, I'm a, you know, understand, I'm a man, you know, I can't, you know, you're a beautiful woman, you know, as a man, you know, you understand me, God, God, no, you know, he didn't do that. He didn't say that as a man, I just have a too, you know, strong sexual drive and, you know, God, you know, boys are boys. And, um, you know, he didn't do that. He just said, it. I actually made sin. He didn't explain that, but Sheba was too beautiful uh, all the circumstances, he admitted that I have sinned. And I think that in this place, when we face our sins and shame, God is like a good parent who carries a child. I spent a childhood in this summer cottage, and, um, and in one summer, you know, there were many children in the village. And once I was playing with a... With a I think that I was five years old. Uh, I played with a girl who lived in the neighborhood. That girl had parents who owned a farm and a hen house. They were chicken. So I don't know why we decided to go to the hen house with this girl. And, you know, I had a clever idea. Let's take the eggs, you know, there and throw them through the wall. 
And uh, so we took all the eggs, we threw them to the wall, and I had another good idea, let's kill a chicken. So I found a fork, and somehow I tried to, you know, but I, I couldn't, I couldn't. Uh, it's a living being. And, uh, but I remember that, you know, as a five-year-old, you don't think about the consequences of what you are doing. Well, and I say to the girl, let's not talk about this later. <laughs> so I went home, but then the, the mother or girl went to the hen house and said, well, why the eggs are broken? And uh, then my crime partner confessed. She prayed, betrayed me. And, um, and then, you know, this lady called to my mother. And her mother said, well, okay, what you have done? And I confessed. I confessed too. So I had to go to that family and uh, ask forgiveness. So I said, I'm sorry I have done. But as a five-year-old, I didn't have any money. So my mother paid the eggs. And I think that this reflects the grace of God. We throw eggs to the wall. We don't realize actually consequences, what we are doing, our actions, how they are affecting each other. And God pays our behalf. Our sin separates us and the other people and, and, uh, and, the, and also separates us from the God. But Jesus experienced that separation on the cross. We deserve the death punishment because of what we have done. But Jesus died, died on our place. He was shamed for our behalf. He was stripped naked on the cross. It was not like the altar picture here with the lame cloth. He was totally naked. That was the custom of the crucifixion. He was sexually ashamed. And that's why I think he has an empathy for those who, have, who are ex sexually ashamed by deeds of other people. So Jesus was shamed by the people when they ridiculed him. They abandoned him. If you have been abandoned by com your community, by the actions, what you have done, he can identify. He was abandoned by his followers even. So please stand up for the prayer. One minute. Big issue. And I, I think that if you feel connected with what I'm talked, there's a place for forgiveness. There's a place for uh, cleansing from shame. You can ask someone to pray for you during this day or in the evening service and let God speak mercy to your heart. Jesus, we come to you and we confess that we are just human vessels. We are just human beings. We are not perfect. And you know that. You, it's not a secret to you. And still you love us. You want to clean our shame. You want to clean what you, you, we have done. And in your heart, there's just love and mercy. Because you created us, and your heart is yearning to have a relationship with us. So that we could be connected again with you, and also connected with your people in a church. So Lord, I ask that you would break the power of shame and guilt in right this moment. Whatever demonic oppression you have, let be broken and not kept keeping you anymore in a cage. Let the blanket of shame be removed. 
in Jesus' name. I'm, I'm calling you forth to the light. Like Jesus was calling Lazarus out of the cave. Come forth to the light. Because Jesus is here. He is ready for you. When you step out of the darkness. And from your grave clothes. Leaving there. All that stink. All that dirt. You can leave. And you be purified again. Because God is good. God is good all the time. Amen.